Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and this is another episode of the Long Run Archives with my co-host, Brett Hornick. We discuss whether betting in ultra running is a good idea for the sport, where the next great trail running towns will be in the 2020s, interesting data and ideas for the Western States Golden Ticket Series, and much more. Let's dig in. We just missed the opening of the can before the, I hit the record button. Such a bummer. Such like a classic sound. Maybe that can be. Uh, maybe that can be the intro sound. We'll have to get all of our favorite beverages that are canned and open them all up in front of a microphone. See which one makes the best noise. There's this concept called sonic branding in marketing, where people get used to hearing a certain sound associated with a product that they're being marketed to. Um, advertisements, all that kind of stuff. And whenever I hear the the of a can, I just associate that with like refreshing and freshness. So maybe we're bringing yeah. some fresh content here today. Maybe that's a good segment. Yeah, might, might set the right tone. Let me just preview what we have to talk about here today. This is the third long run archive with my partner in crime, Brett Hornig. We're going to be talking again about some of the greatest seasons ever in ultra running some interesting golden ticket and old Montreal Cup data that'll be interesting to you. We're going to talk about what else could be a golden ticket race, and this is inspired by the recent revival of the Gorge Waterfalls 100K. We're going to talk, I think, about best trail running towns in the U.S. Uh, fan of the podcast, or at least listener of the podcast, Michael Owen had a great Twitter thread responding to a recent episode we did with Garrett Heath, so we're going to talk about some of his points. What else do we got here? Our Strava find of the week. Did I get everything there? Betting and ultra running. Betting and ultra running too. So we got a good lineup here. Brett, I say we dive first into some interesting data you found around one of the greatest seasons ever in ultra running. What is it? Yeah. Oh man, ever since the last episode, we talked about uh, Magdalena Belay's 2015 summer of ultra running. We were mainly just talking about her win at Western States and then it kind of snowballed on stuff. We were like, whoa, she got second at CCC. Whoa, she ended up winning UROC. Wow, this was an amazing summer of racing. Then we were like, okay, what what other big you know summers or seasons of racing have people done? Because I had heard lots of stories about, you know, like kind of the classic old school ultra runner is just race your way into shape. And, you know, that's something we don't really see too much anymore. Um, maybe that's just as the training for these races has actually gotten a little bit more scientific. Um, but it's really fun to look through some of these uh, archives. And the one that I found that I think that really caught my eye was Anne Trayson's 1998, I guess really her whole year of ultra running. So, you know, most people know Anne Trayson, you know, one of one of the absolute greats of the sport. I mean, male or the female. most dominant, yeah, most dominant runner at Western States. I mean, like it's her race, unbreakable records. Uh, yeah. So, in 1998, she had already won Western States nine times, and it was actually nine consecutive times. Looking back at it, so this 1998 was her 10th running of Western States, which makes you eligible for the thousand mile buckle, which I don't, I'd have to look back to see if there's anyone else who has a thousand miles worth of victories. 
maybe Tim Tweetmeyer, but I'd have to check on that. Anyways, she figured why not make this thousand mile buckle even cooler by kicking off a Western States victory with the start of a Grand Slam run, which the kind of the traditional classic Grand Slam of ultra running was Western States, the Vermont 100, Leadville, and finishing it off with Wasatch. Um, and I know there's been some deviations to it in the past, but I think that's been the most common Grand Slam. And you do that between the end of June and the, I think, beginning, middle of September for Wasatch. And Ann Trayson won all four races. Like she hit a Grand Slam across the Grand Slam. And I just, that's something that's just never going to happen ever again. It's still the fastest combined time. Um, on the ladies' side for a Grand Slam. And then just to like put the nail in the coffin on that one, a month after Wasatch, she went to Arkansas and won the Arkansas Traveler 100. So not part of the Grand Slam, but she was five for five and 100 miles between June and October that year, which is just like absolutely incredible. And this is, this is in 1998. Like ultra running was a lot less luxurious than it is now i mean i know in 1998 ultra running was the most luxurious that it had ever been because it was better than doing hundreds in 1988 but i feel like the sport's really taken a big jump between then and now one thing and this is slightly off topic but it sticks out to me it's interesting how certain races have elevated importance in certain eras like in that time 1998 you're looking at races like the Vermont 100 and the Wasatch 100 and the Arkansas Traveler. And those races still fill up. They have, you know, big fields. I'm sure that they sell out, but on the competitive side of the sport, they've lost their, their standing in, in, in our culture. And it's very interesting. And like to get into the Grand Slam these days, you have to make sure you get into the Western States lottery, for example. So like that also, that whole feat is almost impossible to do logistically these days because of all the things that have to fall in your favor from a either racing in via golden ticket to Western or a lottery. Same thing with Leadville. It's tough. Yeah, it is so difficult to get into Western States and Leadville in the same year. Um, and I mean, just the, I don't know how you recover that fast. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I, I, they weren't, like Anne had run faster times at Western States and Leadville, um, but her Wasatch time, I'm pretty sure, is I think it might still be the course record, or it was up until a couple years ago. I think you found this, so maybe I'm stealing your thunder, but the comparison you made was look at Scott Jerk, who was also at the height of his powers then, and I think you said that in 2004, the year he won Western States, he also went for a Grand Slam, so he got first at Western, fifth at Vermont second at Leadville, and then imploded at Wasatch and got 16th. So it just goes to show that, like, mm-hmm. on the male, on the men's side of the sport, the, the Jim Walmsley of the time, Scott Jurek, he wasn't winning every single one of those races, and here's Ann Trayson just sweeping every single one of them by comparison. Like, it's just, it's so interesting to see the difference. I wish Strava existed back then. I would love to see Ann Trayson's running logs. Oh my gosh. I'd love to see Scott's too. But. Yeah, that maybe that that's yeah. Yeah, who's 
whose running logs do you want to see the most? I mean, yeah, there's definitely some that you made a good point. Like how do they recover? Because I'm looking at their times and like, obviously, you know, Scott jerks winning times back then they might get you into the top 10 these days. Like he did, he did run like 15, 31 year, but he won a lot of years yeah. with like 16 hours, 17 hours. And yeah. that's just not going to cut it now. But like, but he's also winning, but also winning and still consistently running like pretty fast times, regardless of era. So like, what were they doing differently back then? I don't know. Fields were, yeah, fields I mean, were probably maybe, shallower too. Yeah. I mean, maybe the depth's not quite, you know, that it's, the sport's deeper now, but I mean, the performances that they're putting up, you know, 10, 20 years ago, like I just, I, I can't even wrap my head around doing something like Western States with shoes that have stitches across my toes and like cotton socks and water. Yeah. (laughs) Electrolytes weren't even invented yet. It's so, it's so impressive. And just like the way that you had to carry your water bottle. I saw this old, this video from, it was like a highlight reel from the 94 Leadville and almost every single person had, it was just like a fanny pack that vertically held a bicycle bottle just across the lower back. And that was what every single person had shy of the occasional person having a humongous backpack. And that was it. Those were your choices. Shall we pivot to some interesting discussion about golden ticket stuff and the Montreal Cup going way back in time? Yeah, definitely. Um, All right. I got to read off some stats to you. I, um, cause this is what I do in my free time. I like to crunch numbers around golden <laughs> ticket. That's how much of a nerd I am. I actually had difficulty. So the data pre 2014 on the golden ticket series, formerly known as the Montreal cup series is spotty. You'll get it some years. You won't other years, mm-hmm. which races were included. It can be hard to decipher. So here's some interesting stats for you. This is from 2014 on, this is the distribution of golden ticket winners by state 27 from California, 24 from Colorado, 16 from Oregon, 13 from Arizona, 10 from Texas, six from Washington, four from Idaho. Couple interesting surprises to me. Only one golden ticket winner from Montana, and we often classify Montana as a great place to be a trail runner. I think a lot of people that have podiumed, for example, at UTMB are from like Missoula. Mike Foote told me that. Um, Mm -hmm. Zero golden ticket winners from Utah, which to me is crazy. I know that Jimmy Elam and Anthony Castells got tickets. They didn't show up to Western States because of injury, so I wasn't counting them. But zero golden ticket winners Mm -hmm. from Utah, which is crazy. And then no state east of the Mississippi has ever represented more than two golden ticket winners and then only eight international winners. So very, very interesting that California and Colorado were like duking it out at the top. And then like places you would think have pedigree like Utah and Montana really nowhere to be seen. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah. How much of that is just kind of by chance of like, this is where the best people decided to move to and train versus these are the spots where the best runners are coming from. Like how much does the the state or the town actually make the runner versus just creating that great training environment? That's a fantastic, I mean, I think we're probably going to unpack a little bit of that when we talk about best trail running towns, like how important is nature versus nurture and environment and, 
training yeah, partners and stuff like that. But down. what's your take? What's your, well, I guess what's your take there? I mean, it's clearly be well. Okay, so you at least listed a whole bunch of different states. You didn't say ninety-five percent of them come from California. Like there are by your data clearly multiple places where you can say run or train for and then run a successful western states so like yeah i mean so i i think there's a lot of right answers then and then the argument for what is the best trail town is probably never ending um but uh yeah like what i want to know is like these these people who have gotten these golden tickets who are they training with like how much of it was solo how much of it was with people like what was their um like mentors like in those towns as well um you know maybe those are all factors that go into the best trail town more so than only just geographically what hits x y and z for getting good at any particular race you know it would be really interesting and by the way i cannot take credit for this idea this this idea goes to Dylan Bowman, who, who just recently told me about this. Imagine if you take each of these golden ticket winners and you go and you find their times on ultra sign up and then you go to Strava if they have it and you reverse engineer all of that training that they, that they did in the lead up to that race. Like, for example, the Canyons 100K or the Black Canyon 100K. And you like, I mean, mm-hmm. line by line, activity by activity, you go and see who were they running with. Over the workouts they were doing, the long runs, when in the block did they do them? Maybe I'll throw this to you as a coach. Like, could you like reliably go and like look at that data and then build yourself a plan if you thought that you were in that category of athlete and work your way to a golden ticket just based off that? I think you could, but you would have to be really good at knowing what you're looking at. Um, and, you know, I, I'm you know, definitely saying that from a point of view of having looked at more runs on Strava than most people um, and, you know, having, you know, a long running background and now getting into a longer coaching background. I think uh, the training that people are doing now is definitely a lot different than 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and I think one could definitely interpret a lot of it is being like, these people are all doing super different things. Um, but you know, if, you know, to like add on top of all this data, like if you could say, see everyone's heart rate data, you know, a lot of people, a a lot of runners still just don't train with heart rate or, um, they don't publish that data. Mm -hmm. If you could see all of that and like how hard or easy are all these top runners trying per week, that's going to be very similar. Um, you know, like even, even someone like the, the most extreme outlier in the sport, you know, like Jim Walmsley, you look at his Strava and first glance, this, this guy is nuts. He's going so fast. Like he hammers all the time. But if you really break down like what his top end is and what that converts to in regards to his training paces, um, I'm not saying Jim has, is perfect at training cause you know, he's made mistakes and lead ups towards races in the past, but a lot of what he writes out for himself is, is very structured, um, and pretty smart. I mean, for someone like Jim to go out and run 20 miles at seven minute pace, you know, that's like almost two minutes a mile slower than his marathon pace. Like 
that's very slow for him. Like he does a huge amount of running suspiciously easy. Um, and that's something that you would see in common with a lot of the, you know, elites in our sport, uh, across any race that they're training for. I mean, you're going to see a lot of just easy running. Before I forget, do you want to talk for a second? Because we were going back so far in the data around golden tickets you said that you found some interesting data around the Montreal Cup. I think you said something like, if you were like trying to be a pro runner back in the day, or you were trying to like scrape together a living, it might have actually been easier to oh, do yeah. it in 2008 than yeah. 2022. Why is that? So the, the Montreal Cup formed um, in like 2002 about, and basically what it was was a series of races and depending on how you did it, them, you got points. And then at the end of the year, whoever had the most points wins basically. But one thing that's unique to the Montreal cup that does not exist in the golden, like the golden ticket series now is there was prize money put up by the Montreal ultra cup at every single one of these races. Um, it was varying amounts, but it was like, I think every single race on the Montreal ultra cup, uh, once it once it really got going, like 2005, 2006, you could win minimum of $1,000 at each of these races. A lot of the times it, it came into the like two or $3,000 range for, you know, winning way too cool, which doesn't have any, does, does way too cool have any prize money? I've never been close to the front, so I actually don't know. Um, but some of the, most of these races don't have any prize money put up by the races are the race directors. Like Western States doesn't, um, right? No, you don't get any money for winning Western States. You don't get any money for winning UTMB. Um, but as part of the Montreal Ultra Cup, I think you won $5,000 if you won Western States. If you're unsponsored and you win Western States, now you probably get a sponsor. But at that time, you get nothing. Like you get no paycheck. You could race, you know, five or six times in the summer. And if you could podium on all of them, you're 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 going to make a little bit of money, and I think we saw that play out, right? I mean, maybe that in part explains why the Ann Tracens of the world—not that she was necessarily going for the money, but why the Grand Slam was so popular. And not that that was also not that that was tied to the Montreal Cup necessarily, race for race. But like, <laughs> I could I could just totally see why athletes would do that. And I mean, this reminds me, Tim Tollefson made an interesting point when I was talking about the Western States UTMB double with him an episode ago. He's like. I actually think that physically it's it's very possible to turn in an elite result back to back. I think that for me, the limiting mm -hmm. factor is the willingness to mentally work through hard moments. And uh, you talk about incentives. I wonder yeah. if like money is, is an overriding factor there. Like, is that enough for you to push through climbing up Grand Col for a midway through UTMB, stuff like that. So. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy because that was kind of the, that was always the big question of like, Run Rabbit Run versus UTMB. You know, they're too close together to do both. Unless you're Tim Olson, and we'll talk about that on another episode. But Run Rabbit has a lot of prize money. UTMB doesn't. UTMB has turned into the more competitive race. Yeah. Therefore, a lot of people say money does not attract competition. That's very interesting. I mean... Yeah, because run right. Same with Western same States. Same with Western States. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think that a lot of athletes would say, and I don't know this because I've never, I've only seen like one or two athlete contracts ever, but 
they might say, you know, it's written into my contract to be at Western States if I can possibly get there. Whereas maybe Run Rabbit Run is not so much the case. Maybe it is for Ultra. I think Ultra, for example, because I think Ultra sponsors Run Rabbit Run. That's why you always see a bunch of their stable of athletes there. But I feel yeah, like there might be a the, little bit it's more all dictated by financial like, incentive. Yeah, it's all dictated by like what's in your contract. And so maybe they do want to go there because maybe they do want to go nab twelve thousand bucks. But yeah, um, yeah, I've seen. I mean, I've seen a handful of contracts. I'm not going to say who or what brands, but um, w- what I've seen is a lot of ultra running contracts are like pretty like crude and basic. Um, they're not like there is some. Uh, pro track and field contracts that were floating around on Twitter um, last week that had like so many races, times, make these teams, media bonuses, um, you know, reductions for not doing number of races, not performing this well. I've yet to really see any of that in a trail running contract. Um, whether that's for better or worse, it can definitely go either way. But, um, you know, what I have seen, though, is that most of these companies, you know, do put value in some way on doing particular races Um, in most up until a few years ago, most contracts um, winning UTMB or winning Western States yielded about yielded the same bonus. It seems like in a handful winning UTMB is yielding a bigger bonus than Western States. Um, so from a professional standpoint, if you already have the contract, you know, there's more leaning towards UTMB at the moment. Um, and you know, lots of the other smaller races, there's so many races out there. A lot of them don't even make the bonus structure. I know you can always reach out to your, uh, brand's athlete manager and ask to see if they could put a race on, um, and get it slotted into its appropriate tier. But you're still like as a pro trail runner or ultra runner right now, like you're not making much of a payday unless you're at the the biggest races um, in terms of the ones that are the most popular. I've actually never been to run rabbit runs. I, it could very well be a stunning course up there. I think it's steamboat Springs, Colorado, but I feel like because these races are hundred K hundred miles, you do have to have some connection or inspiration to the landscape and, there has to be some really important why in order to finish that kind of event and to take that physical toll. So maybe that could be another thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's been largely like my only motivation to do a hundred mile is I don't care so much about the distance 100 miles. It was more like I would love to complete the Western States course. Um, that was number one on my list. Number two on my list is the Pine to Palm 100 because it finishes in my backyard here in Ashland. Like those are really like the only 200 milers I have like a huge desire to do. Yeah. And it's purely like course related and just, you know, something that I, I like, that's the route I want to do. Um, and I, I think that's really important for anyone choosing a hundred milers. Make sure it's something that you are invested in, um, in terms of like, like, from an emotional standpoint. Last thing on the Montreal front, uh, maybe you brought this up as well, but like back in 2009, you know, when the Golden Ticket Series was run by Montreal, it wasn't just like 100K events, 100 milers that qualified you for Western States. Like you could run a 50K 
like I think there was like the Ice Age 50K in Wisconsin. So there were shorter distances, way too, cool. way too cool. There were shorter distances that were golden tickets to Western. And then also geographically distributed in an interesting way. Like I said, that there was a race in Wisconsin. I think that there was, I think, JF, was I think JFK 50 at one point had mm-hmm. it. There was one, yeah, the Vermont 100 or Vermont 50. Uh, just interesting yeah, that like 50. they cared about, or it just, that's what the way the chips fell that, uh, it was just better represented, better representing all regions. Yeah. Yeah. It was up until 2009. You could race your way into Western States with a 50 K. Um, I don't, I don't know if you still had to have had a like 50 mile or hundred K qualifier. I don't know what year that got put in place, but it would be pretty intimidating to, you know, win way too cool and potentially have that been your first 50k and then just be like oh yeah i'm running western states now best of luck tripling the longest you've ever run have at it well we just witnessed a former golden ticket race that has recently been revived to take place this weekend the gorge waterfalls 100k and by all accounts it was a really cool event i think that you coached the winner of the 100k david laney which is huge kudos we can talk about that, but also, do you think that that race will ever be a golden ticket again? And then B, and maybe this is me just wanting to have this conversation, I'm not really happy with the way that the races are distributed right now. So maybe we can also brainstorm other races across the country and world we'd like to see uh, be a part of the series. Totally. I mean, I would love to see the Gorge 100K be a golden ticket race. Um, and like, maybe that's just out of like pure nostalgia's sake for like when I, you know, a handful of years ago when I was like really just so hyper-focused on everything golden ticket, like those were like the only five races I even looked at during the year. And like, you know, when I was, you know, in my like early to mid twenties, I was like, okay, I'm not doing a race unless it's a golden ticket race. Like I know I don't have a huge shot at it, but like why even run a 50 mile or a hundred K if it's not going to be a golden ticket. So, um, and, and the gorge was one of the ones that I never got to do. Uh, so I, I get, but I do think it's, I, I mean the timing for it, I think timing is just important for figuring out the golden ticket race schedule. Um, like it's a nice time to qualify for Western States and then actually recover and then put together a decent, you know, training block. Um, Wait, do you think Canyons is too late or do you think that's okay too? I mean, you're running it, so it's going to be a bit of a bummer for me to say. I think it's a little bit on the late side. <laughs> um, like, I don't think it's ideal. Like, I think the best golden ticket race now is, you know, Havelina 100 or Bandera mm. because they're the farthest away from western states um you know and that's my my personal opinion that doesn't mean i'm if you're in good shape and you're like oh i didn't have the opportunity in january but now i do at canyons even though it's close to states like of course you're gonna take you're gonna roll the dice on that but i mean i've seen a handful of times now people put forth their absolute best performance at canyons and don't make it to the start line Mm -hmm of Western States, um, cause Canyons is a really hard race. Um, you know, it's, it beats you up. And, and by the way, sorry, I totally 
disrupted what we were just talking about, but we will have a whole, <laughs> we'll do a whole Canyons preview maybe next week, yeah. early the week of the race, but... Uh, Okay, cool. I'm going to bookmark that because we'll okay. definitely cover that next episode. Sorry, yeah. Gold Gorge Waterfalls. More, Gorge waterfalls. more on canyons later, yeah. Gorge, it's, yeah. Um, it's it's a place, so like, this was Dylan Bowman's first year race directing it with um, Daybreak. Daybreak. Yep. Racing. Okay, with Daybreak. Um, they did an amazing job with the live coverage of the race. Like, Dylan was live on Instagram for like, six hours of the day running with people um you know he had other people with you know phones on gimbals and just logging miles along the course and i think having like adequate cell service on a course is something that's really important towards you know the growth of it from a media standpoint um and that turns out to be one of the pretty cool courses that you can still cover most of it for someone to watch who's not there um, so I think, you know, just from a, like, a, you know, media standpoint, mm. you know, it's, it's one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought one of the things that they did really well was, you know, they didn't just leave the commentary and the coverage at aid stations and the start line and the finish line. They made a pretty concerted effort to track runners in between, which I think is really the most exciting. Well, I shouldn't say the most, but it's, it's a crucial part of coverage. Like seeing what the runner looks like in real time out on the single track. Um, you typically see them then at their most honest and raw. I know that at a couple of points they were getting some commentary out of the runners too, like how you do and stuff like that. So it just adds a yeah. whole new element because we've been in the dark about what happens there. It's like you just hear stories from the runners themselves and the pacers or people that passed runners. But like you think about the I run far era of covering races and yeah, they were just restricted to aid stations. There'd be a lot of stuff in the dark. Yeah. And yeah, and like what you usually see is like the overabundance of energy at an aid station yeah. of like, you know, the runners screaming like, ah, as they come into the aid station and then they, they sprint out of it. But that's not real. That's not what That's not what they look like 20 minutes later. You know, I, I think it's really cool to see just quiet running on the trail and like you seeing the people at the front of the pack hiking climbs. That's like that's something like most people visually don't ever get to see is like, oh, you're right. They are not sprinting this entire thing. You know, like they're hiking stuff. They're slipping on the trail. They're choking on goose just like the rest of us. That is a fantastic point. It makes me think if that becomes the new normal at races and we see that part of the race where elite athletes are hiking climbs and they're slogging miles, how much of an impact will that have on other runners in the sport, especially in their training, knowing that that's what goes on at like mile 40 of a hundred K because maybe that might even have an impact on like DNFs and stuff because there's just a more realistic appraisal of what's going on. I think people, people will improve. Um, people will run their best races the more that they can see uh, what the top end of the sport is doing. Um, I've noticed it the most uh, in high school and collegiate track and field and cross country. Um, These high school kids are running times that, you know, when I was in high school, like I graduated in 2009, not that long ago, but the times that these kids are running now you know, there's like three kids in Southern Oregon that in 2008 would be the national lead 
in you know the mile and two mile but now they're like 15th and 20th on the list and the top people are running times where they would be the number one runner at some of the best d1 colleges and part of that is because so many professional training groups and colleges on the elite track and cross-country side of things um they're so much more active you know on social media being present um in in a way where you know these kids who maybe don't live in portland to go hang out with the bowerman track club they can see what kinds of runs and stuff they're doing they see videos of someone goes live on instagram in boulder and it's the on athletic club and they're jogging loops around a park going eight minute pace and yet their 5k is three minutes faster than the kid in high school and they do all their easy runs at seven minute pace you know you just see it and you learn and um you know that's that's allowed the sport to take huge jumps and ultra running i think is a little bit behind that as the sport of ultra running has always been a generation or two behind track and road so i think that's that's next for us one last thing that i want to make sure we cover on the topic of golden tickets is what could be improved because yeah, I take some issue with the current format. One thing I do like is that it's become a year-round thing. Like with the addition of UTMB as a golden ticket event in Le Templier over in Europe, this now takes place year-round, like September, October, Javelina. There's golden ticket races year-round, so we can consider any race we want in an entire calendar year as a potential new addition to the series. And a couple things I want to say. Okay. Well, actually, you, no, no, you go first. I got, no, you wait, go first. Let me, beef before... I don't understand why UTMB is a golden ticket race. Well, it's not specific, for that's Western for sure. Because if you win UTMB, you get a golden ticket to Western states. I don't understand that because it should be like the other way around. I feel like, like I've yeah, like winning UTMB, that's like then you're like, you just won the Super Bowl and now you're getting invited to the Pro Bowl. <laughs> I think we got our clip for this episode. That was excellent. That might piss some people off, but like, I just don't quite understand because they're so close to each other and everyone does like, no one runs West, no, no one runs UTMB and then is now looking ahead like 10 months to Western states. I, I actually think that that uh, plays out in the data. If you look at the, at UTMB, 2021 UTMB, all five men who had the chance to take the, the two golden tickets, they all rejected it. They had Matthew Blanchard yeah. and Francois Dane and you know, I'm, I'm blanking on the other names. All the males in the 2021 UTMB rejected the golden ticket opportunity. And then the exact same thing happened at Tomplier on the female side. All five eligible women yeah. turned down the ticket. Yeah. I mean, and does that mean Western States is not important to them? No, I think it's, I think we're getting a little bit outside the window of qualifying for the next year's race. Like maybe Javelina should be the start of the golden ticket series because it's a hundred miler. I've always, I've been saying for, for years, never like publicly on a podcast, but I always thought a fall hundred miler made sense for the next summer's Western States mm. as a qualifier mm. because Western States is a hundred miler. Why can you, how can you not race your way into Western states with a hundred miles? Yeah. No, and I think it, that just seems ludicrous to me. That, that's a great point. Are there any races out there that stand out to you that you think are missing from this series that that could that would be a good addition? 
Um, I would, you know, I think it's hard to say because, you know, there's so much of it's just what, what will bring the best quality runners, you know, in terms of competition. I don't know if, if you're good at one particular course that therefore means you will be good at Western States. I mean, if that's the case, then like those who get golden tickets at Canyons should have the most success at Western States because it's the same course. Um, so, you know, in terms of maybe it's just the the next best golden ticket race might be the one that just gives more athletes who think they are, you know, fit enough to run their way into Western States, that opportunity. I got a couple here. So the first thing that sticks out to me is that there is no golden ticket race in Utah. And that blows my mind again. I don't know how a place like Salt Lake City in Provo and Park City, which are such such meccas for our sport, are not represented. So a couple races come to mind. Like I think Squaw Peak 50 is an awesome race uh, down in Provo that circles uh, Squaw Peak, Mount Tipinogos area. Absolutely amazing. It's a classic race. If you get a chance, go check it out. Tusher's 100K. That's a fall race, uh, right? It's, it's, it is June. So the, the, the placement's weird. Uh, it's two weeks before Western, so maybe if you yeah. get that, you qualify for the next year's. See, and that runs into the problem. Like a lot of it is like Utah has plenty of golden ticket worthy races, but timing wise, it's hard to throw them in March. Or it's a great know, point. April. I mean, like Tushers came to mind too, uh, but like again, that that's in like the UTMB category of it's more like a hiking, you know, true mountain race. To me, the great. obvious one is like the Bear One Hundred. That that takes place in late September. It's far enough away from the next. Utimbi to recover. It's an interesting course. It's pretty verdy, but you can. It's still pretty runnable in some sections. So, anyways, I just mm-hmm. want to say that about Utah. But I'm I'm really focused yeah. on the East Coast because there's nothing on the East Coast representing uh, a golden ticket yeah. event. So they they lost out to Europe. They lost out and to Europe. New Zealand. I know, bizarre. So like, so JFK 50. I think that might not be a bad idea. Um, yeah, that could be a solid one. Vermont sure. 50. Up in North, up in uh, New England, moving over to the Midwest a little bit, the Superior Hundred in Minnesota that could kick off the series too. Mm-hmm. I'm just I just think that like we need to make sure that every single it's about representation, making sure that every single possible trail community here in the in North America is represented. Let's start there first. Totally. Um, which maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but. Yes, I think the you know we need to. I think the the golden ticket races could be diversified a little bit for sure. I do want to see how the current lineup does for a few years because it it hasn't like they haven't had a year of the new golden ticket races actually going off. Um, you know, just the way they're supposed to be because like Tarawera needs to happen. Yeah. Um, that's a cool. I think that's a cool golden ticket. Race. I agree. Um, I think Transvolcania could could actually be one of the better European uh, golden ticket races just because of the terrain. Um, but I feel like this transitions well into the what if for this episode. I know what you're going to say, and let me say one thing first, and that is we both know okay. that the big blocker here is permitting. Like there's only a certain amount of runners that can line up for Western States. And so if we talk... And that's why there can only be so many golden ticket races. So if we talk about more golden ticket races, we've got to worry about how do you make room in permitting. My hot take of the week here is, and I know this is going to affect two good friends, you and a friend of the podcast, Reed Coolset, 
but maybe we need to get rid of sponsor spots to make it happen. Uh, oh. I don't know. I, that's I've uh, I've never do, thought do of we that because I know that I don't know I don't know hmm. how many that they distribute maybe it's ten or fifteen but like maybe those are on the chopping block in favor of more golden ticket races I don't know but maybe that's my hot take of the week so anyways sorry had to say that first but huh. go ahead what's your take that's interesting I was I've, I've never thought of that before I mean I guess they're to the sponsors who are paying X number of dollars to be able to you know have their logo at Western States. There must be an amount of value to being able to have, whether it's one of their employees, athlete, friend, like do the race. Like there, there must be value in that. So that, that that's definitely a way to free up some uh, some elite spots. But here's an even more extreme way to free up some elite spots. Uh, and the, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier this week. Was this is the ultimate what if? Is what if all the elites raced western states at a different time of the year like an extreme version of run rabbit run where they have the hares and the tortoises and i don't even know if this is gets around permitting like maybe you can only run the course with 360 something runners once in the year but say say you could have uh western states for everyone who qualified in the lottery or something and then all the people who raced into states or all the hares they just do it in September and we have the 150 best men, 150 best women just duke it out for this insane Western States Super Bowl. Maybe it only happens once every four years. I don't know. Um, can you imagine how just bananas that would be of 300 of the best ultra runners in the world going up the escarpment all at one time. I mean, I love it. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the cycling league in Japan that that kind of reminds me of, but yeah, the first thing that comes to mind there for me is all of the people listening to this that are like, no, you know, I love that. One of the things that's special about ultra running is elites and back at the Packers share a start line. And, and I fully agree with that. Like I absolutely understand that that's what makes Western States so special. And this absolutely would ruin that. But I'm, I'm looking at it from like me watching the race on TV. Yeah, the only thing that I think about there is like, it's literally a two minute experience. I mean, like you're literally on the start line. And then two minutes later, that whole experience is gone because there's complete pandemonium. You're trying not to get tripped and, and fallen with runners around you. You do get to be at the award ceremony and the finish. Yeah, I guess there's like the pre-race With stuff everyone, which like, yeah. that's... That's super special too. Like just chilling out in the field next to the track, watching the top 10, you know, get their buckles and awards. And like, you also get an award at that same day. Like, I think that's really cool. Maybe I need some more empathy when it comes to that stuff. I don't know. The fan in me is just like getting 300 of the highest caliber runners in the sport all together on one start line. Like the fan in me is just like, that's so cool because we get stoked when it's 20 people on the same start. Like people that go 2017, you can be most competitive race ever. And how cool is that? I agree. So cool. That was still only like 20 or 30 people. Yeah. And like, maybe, maybe this is all just a part of the, uh, once every two or four years, official world championship vulture running. And like, maybe it is a rolling location. It should be, it shouldn't be at the same course every year. That just plays into the strength of one type of runner. (sighs) I'm bookmarking that for a future episode. That's a good theme. (laughs) Okay. Last thing on this front. I'll, I'll, 
I'll say all these episodes turn into is just us brainstorming <laughs> things to talk about for the next week. I, I think one way to spice up the Golden Ticket series is to have a quote-unquote last chance ticket event. It would take place at some point in mid to late May. It's explicitly a 50K race so that you still have time to recover for Western states. But pick some 50K somewhere you know, on the West Coast mm-hmm. or East Coast, wherever. And um, that's the last chance. It's just just one it, ticket. Well, I don't know. It could be one. It could be the full. It could be two, both on the male and female side. But I think it'd be interesting to like really not have that eight or nine week gap between canyons and western, but to have one more just fan engagement opportunity and roll the dice, and you know you don't come in totally exhausted. You actually have some time to recover because it was a shorter distance. So just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, that would be um, that would build some. I don't know, just a little, little bit more hype for Western states because your know, Western states is totally lacking in the hype department. Um, friend of the podcast, Mr. Ryan Gelfie, co-founder of Trails and Tarmac, trailsandtarmac.com. I know that you're affiliated. We see the hat there. One of the best coaches in the sport. He had an interesting tweet that I'll read here. Actually, I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, prediction. <laughs> Within the next five years, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Missoula, Montana will be duking it out as the home of the elite trail runner. Being from Salt Lake City, I get stoked. I also feel tremendous responsibility for my community to live up to that. First, what do you think about that tweet? I mean, it totally could happen. I mean, it could. I think it could happen to many, many, many locations. I think it takes the right people and the right community and the right mindset. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's going to be Missoula or Salt Lake. At the moment, it does seem that it's trending in that direction. But I mean, like three or four years ago, it seemed like Flagstaff, Arizona was going to be the top trail town just indefinitely, which I mean, I guess for a while in you know the late to like 2005, 2012, 2010, it seemed like Ashland, Oregon was going to be the top trail town indefinitely as well. But I think just as the crops of runners kind of come and go, like even, you know, it seems like even Flag is not quite firing on as many cylinders as it was, you know, four years ago. We are a nomadic people. But I don't quite understand why. Yeah, it's just people, it's just the ebb and flow of, I think geographically Flagstaff makes the most sense to me. I mean, it definitely experiences winter, but trail access is incredible directly from town. Uh, You're an hour drive from the Grand Canyon, which has all sorts of terrain that makes sense for those classic early. You can go to Sedona Sedona to be warm. You can go to Phoenix. If you're a snowbird and you're trying to avoid the worst of winter and you want to run year round, it makes a ton of sense to me. It's also at elevation, like, that all makes sense, but yeah, and you get to live high. Living at seven thousand feet is a big deal, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Salt, I can speak to Salt Lake. It's you definitely come here if you want to focus on the mountains. Like, I also like that it attracts extreme. I'm gonna use this in a positive way. One-dimensional people. Like, you're either extremely into the outdoors or you're extremely into religion, 
And I love that. I love that like people just come here to take whatever their thing is very seriously and they want the best of what their passion has to offer. And there are some downsides. Like we don't have a dedicated trail running store here, which is weird. We, we don't like we had, yeah, we had really? park city running company a while back, which was trail first, but no, if we have salt Lake running company, which is, it's a blend, but I think they're probably road first and uh, then Wasatch okay. running company, similar, um, yeah, we're, we just don't have that like dedicated spot, which is weird. And then, you know, we contend with some air air quality issues. It's not as bad as everyone thinks in the winter, but we have inversion. And then we get those wildfires from California. But there's a type of trail and grade for everyone. You can train equally well for Western States and UTMB here. Uh, you got the resources of a major metro with Salt Lake City. Access is amazing. Olympic infrastructure. You know, we, it was here in 2002. Great doctors. That is cool. You have the training center and then it's yeah. quiet life like not, it's not like a party town so but mm. okay so here's a question i have for yeah. you then so let's just we'll throw solomon in there as our hypothetical brand you're, finn you're sponsored by solomon and they're like dude we want you to be the best runner you can be we will give you whatever budget you need to live somewhere in the united states we'll pay for it where do you want to live and train that's a great question. In the shoulder seasons, there's no question I'm living in Salt Lake proper, like September to November here in Salt Lake. Uh, late February to late May, let's call it March to May, I'm back here in Salt Lake. I do think if I'm trying to run year round, I'm going somewhere else for the winter because you know you, you think about races like Tarawira and Black Canyon and uh, trans Grand Canaria, like either the terrain is too technical and, and snow prohibits you from yeah. training specifically or heat's an issue mm-hmm. and you don't feel like the sauna's enough. I'm going to go somewhere else. And then also I'm going to the East coast. This is my bold prediction for the summertime. I'm going to the East coast. I'm going to a place like Lake Placid, New York or Jackson, New Hampshire or Rangeley, Maine. And I'm training in the Appalachian mountains. Um, because I think my bold prediction over the next like, couple of decades is that we're going to see this diaspora from the West because, and people are going to migrate East because mm-hmm. that's going to be the area that's like the quote, quote unquote, uh, winner of climate change. I think that like, it could become yeah. inhospitable. It's getting a little it's tough. tough. It's getting a little tough to train in the months of August and September, yeah. uh, on the West coast, which is, I mean, yeah, that's a huge, so bummer. I would say that, yeah, it's, it's six months of the year I'm in Salt Lake three months of the year I'm on the East coast. And then depending on what I'm doing in the winter time, I'm definitely somewhere else for those three months too. So there's a total of four places or three places. How about you? Okay. So I, my mind goes to like two, two extremes. One, like the track kid in me is thinking like, I'm going to get an altitude tent or like an altitude house and live somewhere where I can train low Cause then my body can get super strong and then just live high in this house that, that opens up a handful of places. Like, like I, I like them, like, uh, like the Santa Barbara area, like you can get fat yes. Yes. over there. Um, such big running, but you know, it's at sea level, but I'm like, well, if I got to spend, you know, all my time in my house or my altitude chamber bed, where I'm at like 12,000 feet. Cool. That checks those boxes. Um, and then, you know, 
that gives me my winter months, which is kind of nice. Can I ask you a question? Is like Hypoxico, I think they're an altitude tent company. Are they legit? Have you heard anything about them? And do those tents work? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it's like the um, Dylan, Dylan Bowman. He was a rep for Hypoxico. That was, that, that was like how I knew of him first. Um, yeah, the altitude tent is what m- most professional athletes on the distance running side of like the track and road world will do if if they're able to um because you get the most adaptation to living at altitude more so than running at it um so by being able to just spend time at altitude but so for like a uh, someone who's training for the mile you're not going to get very good at the mile if you live at seven thousand feet because you just simply can't run that fast because there's no Mm -hmm. air up there but if you were able to say go down to sea level for every single one of these workouts your body is going to get, you know, better prepared for something faster like that. But then you would still get all the benefits of living up at altitude. I'm looking on the Hypoxico site right now, and you can get like a full tent with the generator for three thousand bucks. I will say, it's like I think they'll say on there too. Like if for this to work, you have to spend like ten continuous hours in it at a point so like not eight and like that's not, one of the eight things. hours of sleep it has to be 10 yeah like i think eight's not quite long enough like you need to be really good at sleeping which is something that a lot of professional athletes are very good at that's one of their superpowers is sleeping um but you know you know you the hour before you go to bed and the hour after you wake up you just spend in the tent but you're committing a lot of your time to a plastic bubble and that's not feasible for a lot of people but if we're talking about just like the nomad like single person lifestyle of just robot training yeah yeah bubble bubble it up sorry i I know i've got us off on a whole nother tangent there but hypoxico it's kind of fascinating um yeah and like uh, the Oregon Project for a while, they had an entire altitude house up in Portland. An altitude house? Yeah, you know, like you go to the the zoo and you go into the butterfly exhibit and you have to walk through those sets of doors that leads to another set of doors. And between those sets of doors, it gets uncomfortably humid. It's kind of like that, except with no air. (laughs) Wow. The the first thing that with these, I got to say, I got to ask one more question about these tents. Like, is my I'm I'm getting worse sleep at altitude, right? It, that's a thing. For a while, For a while. Um, it's because you know your body has to respond and adapt to it. Most people sleep poorly at altitude because they're only up there for like a week. Um, but if you're up there for a month or six weeks, eight weeks, it'll start to get pretty normal. Because what, what elevation do you live at, at right now? Uh, let me check. Forty-two hundred. Okay, yeah. So you're kind of right in that bubble. The bubbles on. Hypoxico would say that's not high enough, but it's definitely high enough where you notice if you come down to sea level, you run oh, yeah, faster. 100%. Well, the reason I'm interested, yeah. so yeah. I'm doing the, I defer, I got into Leadville this year, but I'm deferring to 2023. I think I'm going to get one of these tents mm. for Leadville. Yeah. I mean, I know people, people, that's been a, a way people have gotten ready in the past for like something like Hard Rock. Oh, man, this is so cool. Anyways, back to trail running towns. One other thing I'll say, um, you got to have a recruitment strategy in place. One, one cool thing, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but Jared Ward, who's a famous runner on the roads, built a road running team, an elite road running team here 
in the Salt Lake City Provo corridor. And it's funded by government money. So he went to the legislature and said, hey, here are the economic benefits of the team. Here are the community benefits of the team. Here are the mm -hmm. wellness benefits. Fund this. And they can start paying their runners salaries, health insurance. There's bonuses for doing like community events and just integrating more with other runners. Very interesting. And that to me, I think so, that's cool. so cool. And you talk about in marketing differentiation, how do you stand out versus other towns? When you got something like that, like an installed base, uh, you know, a, a team, yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. That would attract elite runners. Totally. I mean, I think the best trail running town in the next five years is whichever one a company decides to actually let a team that's happen. And it could be in, you know, it could be in Iowa. It could be in Florida. But if a company put together a team and made it a professional team, you know, like NAZ Elite, like that's going to be the best trail running town. Because um, I, I do believe that much in uh, that very top end of the sport getting better with not even running together every day, but just running together some of the days, but having um, the same goal and camaraderie and a good coach. Should we transition over to uh, this thread on Twitter that Michael Owen put together? Yeah, I think that's um, definitely worth worth talking about for sure. Just a little bit of context. Michael is based in Ohio. I want to say he's a race director there and also a great runner. I think he's had some great results in the past at Western States and mm -hmm. um just a bunch of races. So he's a great runner too. And interesting follow on Twitter. We'll, we'll link to it all in the show notes, but he called us out. He said that he listened to uh, a recent <laughs> single track episode with Garrett Heath. And I, I made a comment that basically if you can run a two thirteen marathon on the roads as a male or somewhere in the neighborhood of a two forty seven on the roads as a female, you would have a better chance of taking those talents to trails when it comes to, generating great performances and making a living and he brought up a whole bunch of points as to why he disagrees which is awesome we love having these conversations so i don't know you want to take it from there and, and summarize some points he made totally i mean yeah I, I love the fact that there's um conversation coming up the very first point that i will say though is that 213 and 247 are nowhere near close to equal my bad. times. My bad. Just 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 for your road running gauge, like the 213 male, like the, the lady's time needs to be like in the low 230s, like 230, 232. Let me just say, um, I don't do public math. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that. Um, so it's kind of, it's ir irrelevant to the actual um, discussion. But I, I think, you know, to boil it down, it's, yeah, I don't think every single person running 213 or lady running 230 in the marathon is going to have success at the ultra marathon. I will say, though, that if every single 213 or 230 marathoner had a year to try and, well, not try and figure out a 100 miler, I was thinking about this a little more, and pretty much every single person who has run those times in the marathon did it with a coach. Yeah. Um, they had professional coaching for those times. So but the one thing that like needs to be like cohesive here is they, 
would need coaching going in. I don't think it makes sense. Their chance of success goes down a lot switching sports essentially from road to trail when they jump to trail without a coach. Mm. Like you're switching. Like if I all of a sudden decided I want to be a professional golfer tomorrow, like am I really just going to pick up a set of clubs and go down to the golf course and just start hitting things and hope that one day I become a professional? Like no, I need someone probably to teach me how to do it. So proper coaching, I think, increases the success rate a lot for the very tip-top tier of uh, the sport. And I think that's something that still is pretty much like the Wild West in ultra running is we have elites who coach themselves and have plenty of success. But there could be some other people who just need a coach and a little bit of guidance to be running just as well. Um, But they also right now might not think that they could be good at a hundred mile either because they're already pretty good at the marathon 213. But, you know, it's the, it's like one of the best metrics that we have for being only metric. If you're good at running, if you're good at running, you're going to be good at running. Um, now there's more variables to being good at running a hundred miles because there's lots of different types of hundreds. Um, if we're just talking like any of the ultras in the U S for the most part, like, I think if you take all the 213 marathoners right now and give them 18 months and they are half of the field for this um, this elite, the Super Bowl of Western states in September that we were talking about earlier, and then the other half of the field is all the experienced runners who have already been running ultras but have not come anywhere near close to 213 yeah. in the marathon. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think a lot of the, the, the the 213 people with only 18 months of experience they're gonna they would surprise a lot of people in the sport unfortunately to say even someone who's now been in the sport a long time like if you're 213 marathoner or you're a lady and you've run 230 chances are you could give yourself the opportunity to have huge success in the trails um with that being said though if everyone did that it would not be cherry picking for money in in the sport anymore like that would just be the new norm and then it would be just as hard to make a yeah. living yeah. in the sport and then you would get the two ten, the occasional 210 or 209 yeah. person hopping over to trails so yeah, we're just we're at a moment in time where there's still an opportunity for any elite runner to be a quote-unquote first mover in ultra running where because the sport isn't completely saturated mm-hmm. from a competition standpoint you can go in and if you just have that baseline foot speed ability, as you described, I think it's yours for the taking. And I'm just paraphrasing Michael here. Um, I think one of his concerns is that uh, we shouldn't just award athlete contracts based on potential talent. Like he, I think he says here, it has to be more than just foot speed. There has to be a demonstrated love of the mountains more than just a love of money. He hopes so yeah, he hopes foot speed alone is in what what gets contracts. I I hundred. That's tough. That's true. I, and no, I agree. Yeah. It's it's hard to have a pro yeah. day for ultra. And running. I also agree with that to the extent that I also want people who have a platform because they're getting sponsored to be interesting people that have something intellectually to con- contribute to the sport as well, and they're giving back in some way. And mm-hmm. it's not just like you know some automaton who shows up to a race and crushes it and we don't hear from them in between. I think that like culturally there's something to add. Um, 
I don't, I don't think I agree totally. with his money yeah. piece. Cause even if you're a two ten marathon and you come to the trails, you're not striking it rich. If anything, you're just able to pay the bills. So I don't think we're going to get people like that. And then also like, how are we from a gatekeeping standpoint, how are we having these runners prove their love of the mountains? Like, do they just like, you know, sign a form that says, I love the mountains, give me that contract. Or is it like they've been doing trail running for a while or they've written about it on their social media. I, so I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I agree with, I mean, it might not even be like, I love mountains. It could be, I might love mountains. (laughs) That might be good enough for me. Um, like I might one day love mountains as much as you, but you got to give me a chance to go run in a few of them. I just think we're at a point in the sport still where from a competitive standpoint, we need to recruit anybody we think has a hint of talent because once we reach a critical mass of those types of runners, this could be the area of running where people de facto turn to after college or even in high school, they start thinking, I have dreams of, you know, running Western States one day, as opposed to like being at Hayward field for whatever the U S championships in the 10 K or, you know, whatever it is, I don't know that Mm -hmm. world as well. So I'm just thinking of it from like a, you know, progression standpoint in terms of the professionalization of the sport. Yeah, totally. And like it's starting. Um, I, work a day a week at the at Rogue Valley Runners mm-hmm. here in Ashland and one of the best high schoolers um in the Rogue Valley came in and we were just talking about running we were talking track stuff and he asked what he was like yeah bro what, what's your next race and I told him I was like oh western states it's a hundred miler you know down in in California and he he was just like I know what western states is like I, I like yeah he's like dude it's like the Super Bowl of ultra like he knew what that race was. And he was able to name previous winners of the sport. Like I didn't know what Western States was when I was in high school. I didn't even know ultra running was a thing. All I knew was that there was some guy who wrote a book. He was called the ultra marathon man. He ate pizzas when he ran and he was the only person in the world who could humanly do these things. And I didn't realize that was not true until, um, college when I came up to Ashland here, but so cool seeing, a really good like high school kid come in and just he's just as into trail running as the rest of the running that he does one more thing i want to say <clears throat> just a huge kudos to uh michael for for giving us something interesting to talk about and if you get a chance go give him a follow on twitter super critical thinker interesting dude and someone we like to see in the sport like i said just adding to the conversation and uh, if anybody else has you know reactions to this and you know, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Instagram. We love it. This is great. This is great fodder and definitely makes me rethink a lot of my assumptions. So good stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Love, love hearing Let's it. Let's see. Should we talk about, uh, we got a couple things. Let's do yeah. the sports betting first. So first of all, do you yeah. want to see it in running? Do you want to see it in trail running? I, I do. I, I absolutely want to see betting in the sport of running. I want it to, I want to see it the right way yeah. though. Um, and that's really important. I think, I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard a lot of people voice why or why not. I've, I've, I've seen on Twitter, a lot of hard, yes, hard, no, I haven't seen hard. Yes. Hard. No, this is why, or because this, and I mean, I, I can assume a lot of the reasons why, uh, why no is an answer. Um, it's corrupt, corrupt. We're going to corrupt the sport and we're going to monetize everything. And 
uh, I don't know. What well, else? It's interesting to me because we put this out on Twitter again. Uh, hashtag make Twitter great because I think it's the best social platform. But anyways, it, we put this out on Twitter and it's interesting to me that there were a lot of naysayers and it's interesting to me mm. that these naysayers have more visceral reactions to betting the problems of betting than they do the problems of competition. Like they seem to more closely associate betting with cheating and corruption than they do racing. They see it as kind of, it's like icky. Yeah. Like they, they have no problem with racing, which is also subject to uh-huh. cheating and corruption, but like just, they, they more closely associate betting yeah. with it. And I don't have the stats readily available, but mm-hmm. I would be really curious to know where the fault lines are and whether, you know, betting is more prone to this, to, to, to issues uh, than than racing is, but anyways, it's just interesting that yeah. people's first. So I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, I have no statistics to back this up either. But like, I bet on track and field in the Olympics last summer. Oh, tell me about this. Online sports betting is legal in the state of Oregon, and ohm, like, I didn't do it because I thought I was going to make millions of dollars, you know, on sport. It made it created like in a whole nother uh just like connection to watching athletes run that i might not ordinarily have watched and tuned into like all the races like i you know i was glued to the tv for all the steeples and the 1500s because i had a couple underdog bets in there to win and i didn't really think they were going to win but it was like really really cool for them to be in it with 200 meters to go and these were people that like I, you know i don't know i don't know josh kerr um like i'd followed him you know i'd known he won ncaa title in college and stuff but like i didn't, never met him but then i was just like you know what 20 bucks josh kerr wins gold in the 1500 and like he almost got knocked out in the first round he squeaks through in the second round makes the final and then with 200 to go he's still in it for gold and it just brought a whole new level of excitement to, you know, events or people that I wouldn't ordinarily have cared as much about. Um, yeah, it was just kind of fun. The- and they weren't throwing races. Like, none of these people threw their races. You could you could tell they were all trying very hard to win. Uh, that reminds me, you sent me a video to check out yesterday, and it's the world of cycling over in Japan. Do they call it, is it the Karen? Kieran Racing, um, yeah, it's it's kind of like a take on track racing for cycling, like in a velodrome, um, except it's a league and a sport that only exists in Japan, and it's largely pretty much only funded by betting. And um, it's, you know, the sport itself doesn't have a ton in similarity to ultra running because it's very controlled all the bicycles are exactly the same all the parts are the same manufacturers are the same um and then the races are always the same distance but then it's just you bet on the pink helmet or the blue helmet or the yellow helmet whoever you want to win one of the things though that they i think they get right with it is a huge amount of the money from the betting for these races goes back to the athletes and funding of Mm. the league so for a sport that I'm sure most people have never heard of the top Kieran racers in the league. There's 2,000 cyclists in this league. The top ones make a couple million, million a year. dollars a Two year. Two million a year. That's insane for a sport that I've yeah. never heard of. 
And even the ones at the very bottom, if you're in the league, that means you're very good. And they make, you know, a, a very sustainable yearly salary. And that's because people tune in and watch and basically help fund the sport. Because if you think that you can bet on races to like win money, good luck. Especially ultras. But if you're doing it, that's what they say about gambling is like, it's for fun. It's not financially, you know, your thing. And like, I believe that you you have to be able to separate the two. Um, but I think it's super fun. And I'll link to 20-minute mini documentary about it on YouTube, and we'll link to it in the show notes. There's a couple really interesting moments in it. Uh, one, they force the riders to live in these really bare-bones dormitories uh, for a six-day stretch. So I think it's three days before the event and then all three days of the event so that they ha- can have no contact with the outside world because of what's at stake from a gambling standpoint. They don't want riders contacting anybody so they don't have any access to smartphones or other media. They just have like like a library of books and conversation. So it, that's fascinating. Like what's it like yeah. being there for six days in your own, um, yeah, you're just isolated. So that's fascinating. And then all of these different businesses that form around it too. Like there's uh, like these like vendors totally. that, you know, the, the riders buy food from. Uh, there's this one guy who quote unquote has inside information and fans of the sport can pay him for that advice and you know, he'll, and he'll give you good tips. And I mean, I play fantasy football, so I kind of see that on a couple of discord servers. Yeah. So just, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Like all of the oper- like the downstream second and third order effects that come from creating a league, having it funded by betting and just how much economic opportunity for so many different people is available. Totally. And like, I don't think the traditional go to Vegas, bookie takes my bet of like, I think Killian Jornet is going to win UTMB. I don't think that's really ever feasible in the sport of ultra running because like looking at it from like Vegas's standpoint, when would I ever take a bet on anyone like guaranteed to win a hundred mile? Like they're always just so wide open. Like the trying to look at it from like the bookies point of view. I'm like, the whole point of that is to win. Like I'm supposed to take your money. Like I'm not supposed to create a whole bunch of bazillionaires because I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll give you like 5,000 to one odds that Tim Tollefson's going to win UTMB because he's never done it before. And it's like, no, Tim absolutely has a very good chance of winning UTMB. So like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I just don't see Vegas ever taking like traditional bets like that. Um, where I could see something, the sport of ultra running existing in a betting atmosphere would be something like the one day draft Kings, uh, fantasy football seasons where one weekend of games is the equivalent to an entire season. So, you know, like Finn, you and I, and a whole bunch of other people, we would pay our 25 or $50 or whatever to enter the league. It's a couple days before or a week before UTMB. The way the league works is you get some fictional budget of money and then we do a draft and you draft your team and you have to be careful with how much you spend on your top drafts and then you have your team and then how they do determines how many points you get and at the end of the race whoever has the most points Mm. wins that sounds super fun that could be done in ultra running let's make it happen i think we're both in favor and 
you know, I, I think the last thing I'll leave listeners with is look at where this has already taken shape in other sports like football and basketball and baseball and the states where it's legal and internationally in places like Japan with cycling. Like, is the sport better or worse for it? I mean, I'll leave that up to you, but I think we've made a pretty good case for mm-hmm. the, the benefits, the net benefits. Yeah, and whatever it is, I want it to... One of the benefits that has to happen is I, it has to help grow the sport in the right way, whether that's helping actually, you know, uh, fund these pro runners. You know, if, if you're able to bet a whole bunch of money on UTMB, these betting services or UTMB or whoever it is should dish out some of this money yeah. back to the pros. Like that absolutely needs to be a thing. Um, as well as just helping with like the the sustainability of the sport and making sure that it doesn't turn into a, a corrupt you know mess because um, that is one of the things that I do really like about ultra well, I think that's an excellent point and that reminds me I don't think that sports betting is going to create new runners I don't think that you're gonna as a result of betting see more people lining up at your local, trailer ultra race but i do think it will dramatically increase the number of fans because i don't think that i it definitely I, I don't could. think that um yeah i always forget how to use the phrase mutually exclusive so i'm not going to use that here but i don't think that everybody that lines up for a race uh and participates in an ultra is necessarily a fan of the sport and i think that's one of the reasons why the sport hasn't taken off mm-hmm. from like a viewership and league and and team standpoint and this is the opportunity or one of the opportunities in my opinion for the sport to increase fans and to have viewership and more people rooting for the Courtney's of the world the gyms of the world etc so huge opportunities there Mm -hmm. and that's how every other league in human history has taken off is the people that had the money to grow the sport they stopped focusing on grassroots participation and they instead focused on how do we get people turning on their TVs and their internet connections to go and, and watch this stuff. Yep. We need that. We need that one super wealthy person who just happens to like ultra running to be able to make this happen, even though they're going to take a huge loss uh, financially, but they're going to do it because they like who, it. Who That's is the Mark Cuban of ultra running? Like we need somebody who's like a billionaire that, that loves <laughs> ultra running as much as that guy loves basketball. Maybe For another sure. future interesting segment of the show is like making a top 25 list of the wealthiest people to ever have been associated with running that are like demonstrated fans of the sport. And if they're still alive, we see what we can do to recruit them to make like infrastructure type contributions to the sport. We've got like Let's four ideas okay. coming off. I'll start, I'll start writing my list down. <laughs> All right. Last one. Okay. This is actually, we'll do one more after this. I won't tell you what it is because I think you already put it down in the notes, but it's about the unfair advantage of like shoe prototypes. That one. Yeah. Let's oh, yeah, just yeah, touch yeah, on okay. that really quickly at the end. But last one, Strava okay. find of the week. Uh, CJ Albertson yeah. is running the Boston marathon, which is 10 days from now. We're recording this on April 8th. It's happening. I think April 18th. Anyways, with like, yep. I think it was three or four weeks to go before the race, he dropped either a 2.13 or 2.11 marathon in training, depending on how you interpret the data, five weeks out. And 
I'm actually going to let you talk about this. You, well, for you reference, you, t- you talk about this. For reference, uh, CJ Albertson's marathon PR is 211 or 212. It's either 212 low or 211 high. And then he did like a tune up, like a local marathon, but he was, you know, by himself. He had a lead bike, which apparently uh, took him in the wrong direction for 400 meters, hence the 211 or 213, because his official time was 213. But it was long, so Strava has a marathon split at just under 211, which would be a personal best. And he's running this less than a month out from Boston. The coach in me is just like screaming, like, this is insane. Like, don't, you should, cardinal sin. Like, do not run your race in the workout. He's done this so many times and still had great races. So, like, I, I just don't know how to even unpack what kind of runner CJ Albertson is, but he is so fascinating. He is also He's breaking all the rules. He's breaking all the rules, right? Yeah, he's breaking all the rules. He's also an ultra runner. He had the 50K world record. Oh, really? For a while. Yep, he did because he wanted to see... He did it on a track because he's like, I like running laps on a track. The track's the fastest. I'll run a 50K on the track. And he ran like 248 or 249. And it's since been broken, but, you know, he's... He's the type of person that I want to see run like a road 100K or a road 100 mile um, because he has this, he's very fast, He, but he's even more so than being fast. He has this insane ability to recover and let me illustrate, do these all out efforts like multiple times, like tons of times in one training block. So it's he crazy. ran that 211 training marathon that morning. And then what, eight or 10 hours later, he went on 8.5 mile, 615 pace, quote unquote, recovery run. Yeah. 615 <laughs> like minutes a mile. We're not no. talking in kilometers. And then he like, followed up the next he, week he with 115 it. miles. It was like a 34 <laughs> mile day. Yeah. And then he went straight, no recovery time, just straight into another week of training. Like, um, so he's running Boston Marathon on the 18th. Last year in October, he ran the Boston Marathon, and his first mile was in the low 430s. And he led the race by himself. Everyone let him go because they were like, who's this goon? All the way until mile 20 when he eventually started to hit a bit of a rough patch and got caught. But then he rallied all the way back for 10th. So, I mean, he was 10th in Boston last year, and I, I – He's a professional runner. Like I assume he's been training to improve upon then. So he's lining up again. I'm so excited to see what he does. Um, for anyone who can tune in live on Marathon Monday, be on the lookout for CJ Albertson. He runs for Brooks. Um, he'll probably be in a black and yellow kit. Um, he's, he's going to make the race exciting in some way okay, or another. Putting on your coach hat for just a second. Do you think that CJ Albertson is an extreme outlier who doesn't need to adhere to established training principles? Or do you think that if he followed like what you think, for example, would be the best course of action or what most coaches would agree on, he would actually be uh, doing better? Like, is he leaving stuff on the table, do you think, with the way he trains? I gut reaction is absolutely. I'm like, dude, this, this guy's running 210 running like this. I mean... He might be he might be our American record holder in the marathon, but he just might never do it because um, he's always you know what it, he's just pretty much always running at ninety percent instead of a hundred, or he is this once in a generation 
he's the best ultra runner that's come through, but he's running marathons because that's where the money is currently at. Um, you know, I would be, I would need to look a little bit further back into his like results as a pro. How long has he been a marathon or what's his progression been like? If he, if like three years ago, he was a 218 guy and now he's 210. It's like, okay, he's doing it right. If he was a 212 guy three or four years ago, and now he's a 211 guy, I'm like, well, kudos to you for staying at that level, but I'm sure that's not where you want to be. Um, you know, I'd be really curious if it's like, if we just had him go train with the NN running team, um, which is the elite group that Eliud Kipchoge uh, trains with over in Kenya. If he went and just trained with them, for, you know, which is, it actually is a whole bunch of 202, 203 marathoners. How good does he get if he just does what they do for a year? And it's, I know it's completely different than what he does. Um, maybe he's already tried it and he got worse and this is why he does what he does. Um, I can only assume that as a professional road runner, you've kind of gone through your paces in regards to uh, trying the things that work. I feel like we covered a lot of awesome ground in this episode and we're tacking one last talking point on we've got a listener question who I think this one was for you actually so I'll let you take it he wants to know if when elite athletes have these shoe contracts and they get prototypes mm -hmm. of stuff that are going to come out well before the public has access to them maybe six to twelve months could be longer do they have a significant mm -hmm. competitive advantage given that they're running these prototypes what are your thoughts on that if we're talking about trails, no. Um, and that's just because even the prototype tech that I've seen on the foot, the feet of these elite runners, it's, it's nothing like the jump that road running has made in regards to like true super shoes. There are no super trail shoes yet. Um, there's about to be, but that tech, it's just trickling down more or less from the road side of the world. Um, so, and, and really there hasn't been, like Killian wore a prototype version of the S-Lab Pulsar for the whole year before it came out. Did that give him an unfair advantage? Um, no, I don't believe, I, I personally don't believe so because that, that Solomon shoe is not, uh, it's not like a the, the it's not like a generationally different shoe than what anything they've been making. Like it's light, it's a little bit softer, but like it doesn't have a carbon plate or like springs to propel you forward. Like it, and Killian's been in custom shoes since day one with Solomon. Um, he he has a custom last. Like if he if you ask him what his shoe size is, his shoe size is Killian Jornet. Like. The, he, there's a, and, and just from a trail standpoint, the shoes just haven't gotten to that point. Um, because it, I've, I've worn an alpha fly on the trails and I've worn an X percent on the trails and it's horrible. They make terrible trail shoes. Um, so it, it doesn't just convert straight over. Um, and I've, I've yet to see some pro win a race by a landslide when they were not that good before the shoes yet 
Perfect place to put a pin in it. Long Run Archives number three will be back. Let's see, today's Friday, April 8th. I think we have agreed to do a Canyons 100K preview at least week of the race. Actually, let's, let's end on this. Just as a prelude, do you okay. think looking at the ultra sign up for Canyons 100K, is this the most competitive non-Western states race in American ultra running history? Like this just, particular just, just one? The, looking at the entrance list and seeing how deep that runs. Like I'm looking at it right now. I'll have to look at it again because um, there's been some there's been some years at Lake Sonoma that I think rival or pass let's talk about this. that. Like if you just take like if you take the Lake Sonoma from X year versus this team and they run a cross country style race at a mixture of these courses. I don't know. I think there's some some races in the past that are not Western states that can definitely throw down against this uh, Canyons lineup. But I do think that this Canyons lineup is in the conversation. Yeah, we'll be back in 10 to 15 days. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like what you listen to, could you do me a big favor? Go to Apple or Spotify podcasts, like the show, subscribe to the show, and leave a review. It helps new listeners discover this podcast. Other than that, this particular series, The Long Run Archives, will be back in about 10 days with a preview of the men's and women's field at the last golden ticket event before the Western States 100. That is, of course, the Canyons 100K. Stay tuned.